Welcome, everybody. Um, my name is Robin Burgess. I'm one of the directors of the, uh, the IGC, and it's uh, a pleasure to introduce two very eminent speakers in the area of uh, fragile states. So uh, Tim Besley, who's a colleague of mine here, is undoubtedly one of the, the leaders in the area of political economy of development, which is obviously a key area within fragile states. And Paul Collier, who's uh, the other director of the IGC at Oxford, um, it sort of opened up the literature on conflict, brought it into economics. So what we're going to do this evening is to have Tim go first and speak for roughly half an hour, and then uh, Paul will come up speak for, and then we'll give, that will give us plenty of time for you to pose questions to the speakers and hopefully get a bit of discussion uh, going around this issue about uh, you know, growth, growth challenges in uh, fragile states. Okay, thank you. Tim. Thank you very much, Robin, and uh, um, it's great to, to be here to talk about this very important topic. I'm going to be sort of the, the bad cop to Paul's good cop in a certain sense because I'm going to talk mainly about um, some of the academic issues and academic challenges uh, and talk about the research program. As you know, the IGC uh, is very... One of its central tenets is that we want research and policy to talk to each other. So... I'm going to begin that conversation, and then Paul will, will take that up in his remarks. Um, so that should be going forward and back. Well, I guess Chang had this problem last night. I was told. That will work. No, that won't work either. Wait a minute. That should work. Okay, excellent. I think I don't, I don't really have to say much of what's on this slide, but I, I'll just use it to set the context. That, that We know that when it comes to thinking about development challenges more generally, um, that the focus of attention on fragile states has become a very um, uh, salient issue in, in, in recent times. Now, if you, and, and, and if you go to our sort of textbooks in economics, and this will be much clearer as I proceed, the tradition in economics is to, be, to take a really rather Panglossian view about the nature of the constraints that state action faces. And clearly in the context of state fragile states, and I'll be more specific about what I mean by that uh, as we go, um, one can be anything other than uh, um, optimistic about the way in which we think effective government works. Indeed, that's almost the very defining issue for a fragile state context. And we know that increasingly aid and international assistance views the problem of how we deal with a range of troubled states and the, rate and, the, and the significant problems that they face. Let me begin with this famous quote from Tolstoy that begins Anna Karenina, um, that all happy families are alike and each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, which is going to be a bit of a theme for uh, the talk this evening. Um, and I'm going to talk about how we respond to this or how we think about this through the lens of modern social science and then bring that to the the, the, the more practical context of how we deliver on uh, trying to improve the situation in fragile states. When we think about state fragility, the, the problem is that there's just a whole range of pathologies uh, uh, that travel under the heading of state fragility, and I'm going to unpack those as we go. But I think it's fair to say that there are now been academic developments, things that have gone on uh, that have helped us, I think, will help us 
uh, understand many of these issues. And two of the big developments of the last 25 years in academic economics, I think, are going to be or are deeply relevant to understanding these issues. One is the growth of behavioral economics and what that tells us about how uh, individuals behave in particular. And the other is the growth of political economy as a vehicle for understanding state behavior. And these, for those of you who've been away from economics for a while, I think you'd be genuinely astounded now how transformative uh, those have been, those themes have been on the discipline of economics over a 25-year horizon and how they're now routinely brought into analysis of all sorts of issues. And I think are deeply relevant for the issue at hand, as I will explain. Um, and, of course, are very influential in many of the research projects that the IGC supports as well. So they're, they're not just uh, on the fringes of the IGC's activity, but actually rather central to them. So I want to really try and provide uh, a framework of thinking, um, which is, as you'll see, very rooted in these themes, that I, I hope will be helpful for thinking through some of the issues that we care about. And I'm going to sort of do it at the level of three layers. I'm going to talk about individual and household decision-making, um, and I'm going to talk about a very specific context. But I think it's actually, the more I've thought about this context, is incredibly useful for getting into the issue at hand. Then I want to talk about collective action, and then I want to talk about state action. And I want to, by the end of this, you'll begin to see, I hope, a series of themes that actually is rather joined up across these different contexts. So let me begin by um, taking Tolstoy really very seriously and talk about a program that's a million miles away from anything you might have been thinking you were going to hear about when you came into the room. And that's something called the UK Troubled Families Program. So it's exactly about what Tolstoy was talking about, the, the unhappy families, but in the UK. And it turns out that if you take the 120,000 most troubled families in the UK, they by a rough estimate, are responsible for about £9 billion worth of public spending. These are the most dysfunctional families in the UK. They're involved in crime, antisocial behaviour, drug use, and all sorts of what we would consider pathological behaviours. Okay? And the UK started in 2011 a programme to try and figure out what you do about these troubled families. Now... Uh, one, one of the reactions to this, by the way, was one county, and I won't say which one in the UK, that said, oh, no, no, this is terrible. You're stigmatizing these families by calling them troubled. We should call it the Thriving Families Program. Um, so maybe we should talk about the Thriving States Program rather than the Fragile States Program. Um, but what's happened in this context is each family is given a specific community worker and very small sums of money in comparison to that $9 billion which is about two-thirds, by the way, or three-quarters of the size of the UK's aid, aid budget, spent on 120,000 households. This is not like a, a, the bottom billion. This is the bottom 120,000. And the aim of the program is to get children back into school, very obvious things you might do in a troubled family context, reduce youth crime, uh, put adults on a path back to work, reduce the high cost of the fa these families impose. Now, when you begin to think of the fragile state context, these are many of the same issues. And there's some fascinating, sort of at the level of anthropological studies, some fascinating examples that come out of this. I heard of one story of the caseworker. One of the things they've been trying to do is improve nutrition. One of the big issues in troubled families is very poor nutrition, often taking the form of obesity rather than uh, being underweight. Uh, and they want to teach people how to cook for themselves and do basic 
functional things for themselves. They showed up at a house, and the house had a, an oven, uh, and yet the person was doing no cooking. And they said, well, why aren't you doing any cooking? They opened the oven, there were no shelves in the oven to actually do any cooking in the oven. Interestingly, what did the caseworker do? The caseworker went out and bought some shelves and put them in the oven. You might think, well, that's a very sensible thing. Well, actually, that got heavily criticised because what the caseworker didn't do is teach the person concerned how they went and fixed the problem for themselves. They just went and fixed the problem. And they said, no, that's the whole point of this program is you have to find ways of people solving the problems for themselves. Now, what do social scientists think about when they think about troubled families? Well, they could be the kind of what you might call homo economicus view of the world. These are actually rational, self-interested people behaving exactly like economists think they should. But they're sort of efficient but troubled. Um, they need to understand the constraints and incentives better than they do. They don't, they're misperceiving the nature of constraints. Or they lack capital or they lack skills. So there's a kind of very conventional economic analysis of troubled families. And, uh, of course, that's one way of reacting to this. We just want to deal, deal with, with the constraints and the lack of opportunities. What's the behavioral economics view of this? Well, George Lowenstein, whose work some, many of you will know, has a beautiful paper where he talks about the problem of visceral instincts. That's not something that used to appear in economics textbooks very often, talking about the kinds of behavioral issues that lead to addiction and violence and other things. In other words, it doesn't accept the possibility these people are rational, far-sighted, and efficient. There's a series of behavioral biases that contribute to these self-destructive behavior. So that's kind of the behavioral economics view. And then there's the sociological view, which I tend to associate now with Talcott Parsons. There's this beautiful book on families and socialization written with, with Bales back in 1955, where they talk about the fact that it's really the creation of human personalities and dysfunction that's critical here. Um, so, so, and talks about the role of families and socialization. And as you see, as I pr progress and think now Let's scale this up and think about states, not families. Many of these same issues are going to come up repeatedly. So even if you drill down to the most micro level and look at dysfunctionality in a micro subunit, I think you actually end up earning a lot of the same stuff that when it comes to unpacking that and putting it at the macro level is quite relevant. And that's why I'm, I, I wanted to, to talk about this. Within the economics literature, one thing we've realized, and Jim Heckman has done some really fascinating work on this, is that it's non-cognitive capacities. So economists used to bang on about skills and human capital as a source of, of, of issues. But, but what, what, um, what Heckman in his work has shown is that actually non-cognitive skills are really, particularly for young kids, very important to attainment. So motivation, aspirations, ambition, these are the things which if you can build them in, in kids, particularly kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, you can really make an, have an impact on their on their life chances. Um, and uh, understanding, therefore, the process of the creation of the non-cognitive skills is probably just as important as the cognitive skills. And again, I'm going to tie that back into the wider theme that we're here to discuss this evening. And if you think about where troubled families come from, they come from the self-reproduction of low cognitive and non-cognitive capacities. And that's why you get these long intergenerational patterns of... Um, of uh, disadvantage, self-reproducing disadvantage. So that's at the level of families. That's the very micro level. Let's go up one more level and now think about collective action. 
What happens when you have multiple people interacting in an environment where the aim is to try and provide public goods or to provide collectively uh, good outcomes? And, of course, now we talk a lot about the role of social capital. We're beginning to talk much more about the role of anti-social capital, which actually in the environments that we study in the context of fragile states is pretty important relative to social capital. There's the, the upside and the downside, the kind of thing that promotes violence and conflict. And the capacity for collective action, for better or worse, is extremely, again, something we, we now believe in the development literature was not studied so much 20, 30 years ago, the centrality of understanding the mechanisms by which collective action works in whether a firm is efficient, whether a community delivers on public goods, all of these now, the, the question of the environment for collective action, absolutely central. But again... How do, how do we approach the study of collective action? Now, you'll see we're kind of repeating ourselves here. The traditional approach, Mansur Olson wrote this wonderful book in the 1960s called The Logic of Collective Action, was all about rational self-interest and the incentive to free ride, and that's where lack of collective action would come from. But, of course, that was all... When we began to study that empirically, there were things that we couldn't understand in that framework. Probably one of the most robust findings in the empirical literature, literature on collective action is the importance of education. Controlling for all other characteristics, education has an incredibly strong effect on, the, on, on private provision of public goods. And, uh, and that's very hard to understand. So what is that telling us? Well, people then started to think, well, where does the motive to become civically engaged or to become a good citizen, for want of a better term, come from? And... Um, the role of values and preferences and where they come from and why some people adopt particular value schemes and preferences becomes then a central issue. Again, it was a no-go area for economists not so very long ago that we, the last thing we should talk about is where people get their tastes and preferences from. That's the very data we begin with when we study an economy, not something we think is coming from anywhere. That's just, you know, it wasn't necessarily biology. Maybe it was your parents. We never quite wanted to unpack that. It was thought of almost as a, a sin among economists to even go down those kind of routes. But when you begin to think about the delivery of collective action and the kind of social processes, it becomes, I think, quite important to do that. Okay, now let's get to state for duty. That's why we're all here. So why have I had this diversion? Well, you're going to see uh, the themes I've tried to put on the table so far are very central to thinking about state for duty. So this was a chart. So anyone who went to Eliana LaFerrara's wonderful presentation yesterday will have seen this picture already, which is the Fragile States Index from the Fund for Peace, which these kinds of things now kind of become a, a big deal, seemingly that people are going out there and using their own methodology, trying to construct indices of, of state fragility, and that's what the global map looks like. Dark red is not so great, uh, and uh, blue is much better. Uh, the way it's drawn on the map, and, and these are the ways we now look at state fragility. Well, I haven't even start, begun to say what I think is in here and what's important about this, but this is what you see. The other point that Eliana made yesterday, for those who, who saw her presentation, is out of the 14 IGC current countries, nine are in the fragile states category. Um, and in, you know, South Sudan in the very high alert category and uh, Pakistan in the high alert. So the IGC is some way unavoidably intertwined with the theme of fragile states and understanding them. Now, states in a way are a form of collective action, but they, they differ in a very fundamental way from the kind of collective action I was referring to just now, and that's because the state has some very different 
characteristic to any other form of collective action, and that is, in the Weberian view of what states are about, it is, it is the, the organ in society which has a monopoly on legitimate use of force and has the capacity to legitimately coerce people to behave in a particular way. And that gives us a rather different character in relation to debates about fragility. Fragility in the state is fragility in that one agency in society that we believe, if we believe the kind of Weberian characteristic of state uh, characterization of state development, has the power to coerce. Now, what is a fragile state in that context? And there are really three dimensions to this that I'm going to spend the, my last few minutes talking about. Um, and they are weak state legitimacy, weak state capacity, and weak resilience to shocks. And some combination of these three, which are all interrelated, is really, I think, the core idea of what we're trying to get at in the context of state fragility is what we want to understand and in in the end, it's what we want to do something about. And they're very, it's, very, it's very complicated as a sort of scientific analysis because all these are interrelated. They require very complex directions of causality. There's never going to be some simple story about one thing causing another. Um, and that's a problem when you get to these indices. I don't want to spend my time beating up on any, anybody's index. They're all constructed with serious work and serious thinking but you are probably going to be left none the wiser as to what the particular directions of causality are between measure A and measure B. They're all plausible measures of something we don't like. That's what makes a state more fragile. But they're very, at the moment, given our level of understanding or scientific understanding of these issues, I think they, 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 they don't conform to any underlying framework. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time trying to think about what the beginnings of a framework or a useful framework would be for diagnosing these issues. Actually, I'm going to start in a place where I don't think, uh, Paul, Paul's going to talk about this as, as well, where I don't think we're very even on the first base in social science generally. And that's the question of legitimacy. I don't think we really know how to understand the concept of legitimacy. Of course, it may be you know, we understand it when we see it. Um, and in the political economy literature of the last 25 years, which I would say has made a lot of progress, I think we've made close to zero progress on the question of understanding the essence of what makes a state able to coerce or to command obedience from its citizens. Um, and there's some wonderful phrases out there. Legitimacy you can talk about endlessly. I the one I particularly like, which I put is the elixir of political power. You know, Sounds great, but what, what does it mean, uh, and where does it come from? And many of the explorations in legitimacy are circular. We, we are obedient to the state because we view it as legitimate. Being legitimate is means your citizens are obedient, and you quickly end up with some circular restatement of that proposition. I mean, I must say there isn't a lot done on this. I, I still think, for those of you who've never looked at this on YouTube, and I'm sure most of you in the room have, just go look at the Milgram experiments again and think how many puzzles they create. So, so, so these are the, the experiments that, that wouldn't get through any university ethics committee again, um, where you uh, have people administering fake electric shocks to other people who are actors and then respond to those shocks. And the whole point is the guy in the white coat uh, is able to get you to give near-fatal doses of electric shocks to people. Uh, and these are, you know, the whole question of where obedience comes from, and psychologists have studied this endlessly, these are very interesting issues, and the link to what you're willing to do in the name of national identity, a lot of these issues, really important issues that we haven't yet fully grasped. 
So I'm going to park legitimacy. I think Paul will tell you something more positive about it, but I feel this is an area we, we really aren't quite on first base with yet. I think we're much closer to being somewhere in the study in, of, of state capacities uh, and what drives them and where they come from. I think we're further along. Of course, I, if those of you who know my research would, would know I'm being a bit self-serving in saying this, but um, the three dimensions of state capacity that we have to worry about, the fiscal, what makes the state able to raise resources from their citizens, Probably, in, in the more interesting case is when that's non-coercive, but, but anyway, fiscal capacity. Legal capacity, the capacity of the state to deliver um, justice to their citizens, the rule of law. And uh, uh, the collective capacity, the capacity of the state to fulfill the needs of the citizens in the provision of collective goods. Um, these are the three key dimensions and they're the things we need to understand. And when, these are not separable dimensions. One of the big mistakes, I think, that's been made in the study of state capacity uh, historically has been to want to hive off one of these dimensions and say, oh, we need to get the tax system working. Oh, no, we need to get the legal system working or we need to spend better on education. It's the interdependence, the complementarities that are really important if you're going to tackle the problem of absence state capacity, in my view. So what does it look like? So, so you, there's a kind of Anna Karenina story here too. Um, if you, so here's a very crude way you could object to this endlessly. I'm going to measure collective capacity as just an index of school attainment. Fiscal capacity is the share of income taxes in total revenue. And legal capacity is the index of contract enforcement on the World Bank doing business indicators. They're just three arbitrarily chosen dimensions of state effectiveness in those three dimensions. It turns out the picture wouldn't be, you could, you could choose any number of these things and they're going to look quite similar. What's the big story? The big story, if you can see it, are the red dots up there. Roughly speaking, all of, almost all of the rich countries of the world, the red means they're rich countries, are basically um, doing well on all of those three indicators. Um, they are the happy families of Tolstoy. They look similar. They basically have efficient legal systems, they have functioning tax systems, and they can deliver a range of collective goods. They're kind of not interesting. Of course, it's interesting to know how they got there, but they're not interesting in terms of the variation amongst, among them. And you know, even though we may think the United States doesn't have a proper welfare state, so it's not quite like Denmark, to all intents and purposes, it's much closer to Denmark than it is to many of the states that would be described as fragile. The interesting thing, and this is the unhappy families point, is the other dots are like all over the place. You have states that are doing relatively well on some of these dimensions and relatively poorly on others. Uh, so Kuwait would be an example, which has very high levels of social provisioning, very low levels of income tax. Now, it's partly oil-related uh, and generally sort of moderate levels of contract enforcement. So you get sort of states within this, which, which look really rather different. So while, it's, while what I'm saying is right, namely that there's complementarities and you need to understand how these things move together, it's also the case that when you get to the states that are not doing so well, they can be not doing so well in very different ways. So they're a bit like those families getting visited by their caseworker. In the case of state capacities, they're kind of lacking in different ways and the caseworker has to figure out why it is they're doing well on something if they are doing well on it, why are they doing less well? It's a case of getting down and drilling down to the detail. Now, what do we believe about this now? Why do we think state capacities come from? Well, if you've uh, swallowed your um, why nations fail, um, which uh, actually would be a pretty big thing to swallow, uh, e e even on the uh, Kindle version, um, 
Uh, but anyway, if you've read uh, Why Nations Fail, you sort of believe that it's all about institutions and how they affect incentives. And if we only had inclusive institutions, that would lead to uh, better incentives. And I think that's almost certainly uh, right. And, and in the work I've done in this area, we talked about the incentives to invest in, in, in state capacities. What creates an incentive by the state to want to improve its tax system or want to improve its delivery system for public services. You have to begin with the question of why it is that the incumbents, the people who hold on to political power, appear to have relatively weak incentives. And, and that's really, from that sort of institution's view, you can think of it as rational forward-looking behavior. It's back to economics as traditional economics. We think of it as what do rational self-interested people do? And if rational self-interested people don't want to build a state, you won't get a state. So it's, again, back to the very traditional economic model, the strategic view. But of course, there are those who take, a, even in the context of state capacities, a much more culturally oriented view. There are people out there who really don't have a culture of tax compliance. So how are you going to get those guys to start complying with the state? So there's a, often, a, again, a kind of more cultural, behavioral uh, view about why states succeed in some parts of the world and not in others. And in fact, if you look at political scientists and what they said about state development, they often take a quite strongly culturally specific view of where states have evolved effectively and where they haven't. Um, I think that's quite kind of, I'm not going to bang on about this at any length, but I think that's kind of unsatisfactory because cultural norms and these things evolve over time. and We can't take culture as a static factor. It's really the dynamics that become much more interesting, but I'm not going to talk about that much now. Where do I think we need to take all of this literature now? Where do I think it should go? I think... States are, is disaggregating states, even fragile states, um, looking at, you know, what works in municipalities, regions, cities, and national government. A lot of the focus of, of the work I've done so far and others have done so far has been at looking at state capacity at the national level. Unavoidably, that, I think some state capacity has to be thought of. If you're going to lay out an effective transport network in an economy... It's very unlikely that you'll be able to do that with too much decentralization. You know, the design of, a, 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 of some things that an economy needs to grow have to happen at the national level, and unavoidably there needs to be an effective functioning national state. But other things, as we know, can be delivered. But understanding why there's so much heterogeneity in state capacity across economies, I think, is one of the big challenges. And actually the work that Eliana talked about yesterday began to see how we were unpacking that, particularly with with, with work on uh, uh, randomized control trials and other things. And we know that if you look at some economies, Colombia is a famous example that's often cited and there's a lot of research on now, you know, there are some regions where the state is basically non-functional um, and effectively you have organized crime as opposed to state action. Um, and there are other regions that look much more like functional states. So understanding this from a sub-national point of view seems rather important. I'm going to now talk a little bit about something on that theme and come back to the institutional theme and show you just a little bit of evidence that, that I want you to think about to sort of close. I'm going to use a, a data set that's becoming increasingly used by people who look at the spatial dispersion of violence and economic development, which is this thing called Grow Up, which you could, you know, if you're minded to, you can go download from a website and, and start playing with quite quickly if that's your, if that's your thing. It's a data set on 564 ethnic groups across 130 countries for the period 1992 to 2010. 
And what are economists doing a lot of now? Some, many of you will be familiar with this, to look at the spatial, um, uh, spatial distribution of economic activity, looking at satellite data on lights at night. So if you look at, I mean, the famous example, I think it's in the Why Nations Fail book, is you know, look at North Korea at night and look at South Korea at night, and you see a very distinct pattern about what economic development looks like through, the, through looking at a, uh, a satellite image. What's nice about that, I mean, what's, I mean, there's a lot of issues about what that's measuring. And the work that people have done, there's some very good work, including by Vernon Henderson at the LSE, it looks as if about a 100% a, a increase in luminosity maps into about a 30% increase in GDP. So we know something about where we can measure GDP, what the link is between luminosity and GDP, but it's kind of imprecise. But it, what it gives you is an advantage of looking at this in places where you couldn't tell without looking at satellite data, where are the, what's the spatial distribution of income look like within an economy. So it's become quite a popular way of looking at things. So what I'm going to do is take night light and map it through the Grow Up project into um, what ethnic groups receive in the way of night light. So you can look at the night light of different groups. And I'm going to, I'm going to look at groups according to how politically included or excluded they are. And I'm going to also separate countries according to the nature of their central political constitution. And for that, I'm going to use a concept, which I'll explain to you very quickly because I'm running out of time, of whether a country, according to the standard database that's used for looking at these things, which is the Polity 4 data, has what's considered to be strong constraints on the executive or weak constraints on the executive. What does that mean? A country with strong constraints on the executive essentially has a functional parliament and a functioning legal system that constrains political power. It doesn't have to be a Supreme Court, but it's a country in which there are judges, and judges are able to hold politicians to account, not just you know, regular people to account. So if you get the highest score on executive constraints, think of it to the first order of approximation, is you have an effective parliament or legislature, and you have an effective legal system. And I'm just going to take the countries that have done very well on that score, which is, means they get the top rank, number seven. It's a seven-point score. And countries that get below seven. So I'm taking a very strict cutoff. But you know, those of you who are research-minded will know that one has to worry about the robustness of results. And I'm going to ask the following question. If you're a politically excluded group, so what, are, what do I mean by politically excluded groups? Those that are, according to the Grow Up database, which takes every ethnic group in every society and classifies it according to the extent to which it part gets to participate in, in, in politics. And they, it basically has three groups. It calls them powerless, discriminated, and self-excluded groups. And then what you can do is you can look at the amount of nightlight that these groups get, and you can look at whether being politically excluded or included gets you more or less nightlight, suggesting that you're getting greater benefits from the state. But then what I'm going to do is allow for that to vary according to the nature of the central state. Do you have strong constraints or weak constraints on the executive power? Okay? And uh, essentially, for those of you who... who, who, who um, uh, those of you who are research-minded in the room, I'm going to put in country times year fixed effects. So I'm going to put in, look at everything within country over time. Uh, and I'm going to also put in group-level fixed effects. So all I'm doing is I'm saying, in a period in which there are strong executive constraints and you're part of the excluded group, do you do better or worse um, 
uh, in terms of the amount of power that appears to be in your region. And the results are pretty striking. That being excluded in general, so these are coefficients in, in regression, but you don't, I'll just verbalize them for those who only care about the bottom line. Is Being excluded is bad for nightlight. So if you're part of an ethnic group that is excluded systematically from power, from power, not electric power, but power <laughs> as in government power, then you're going to have less electric power. I guess that's what you're saying. There's going to be less luminosity in those areas. But that effect is much larger when there are no executive constraints at the central state level. So what's the link of this to fragility? Well, the other thing we can do now is to map conflict across the map. And we can look at conflict within these different groups. And we can ask the same question. Does political exclusion lead to more conflict? And does political exclusion under weak executive constraints lead to even more conflict? And that's the next line. So what you find here is if you look in countries that have weak executive constraints, you get more conflict among the areas, the ethnic groups, that, have, uh, that are politically excluded. So this is trying to link the literature on institutions and the literature on fragility. And the theme, and I'm not going to get right through my presentation, I haven't planned my time so well, but the theme that I want you to take away from here is there is an institution story. The institution story is around the role of institutions that allow you to reach some kind of collective decision-making in the interests of a wide group of citizens. That's what I'm going to argue is the importance of the executive constraints. So that's why central authority still matters. And that manifests itself both in economic disadvantage and in uh, increases in conflict. Um, so, so the lesson to take away from here is that there really does look to be an institutional link between political exclusion, conflict, and executive constraints. Let me just, uh, can I take two minutes, Robin? Let me tie that now to my final theme, which is weak resilience to shocks. Okay? So economies are facing shocks all of the time. You know, external shocks, commodity prices, internal shocks, natural disasters. Um, and some shocks are entirely man-made, for want of a better term, corruption scandals. One of the important issues is how do different societies handle those shocks? Are some societies particularly susceptible to having very bad outcomes from the same size shock as other economies? Well, here's one way of looking at it in a very simple picture. These are the, the maximum size of your GDP loss, and I'm comparing two sets of countries. So it's back to something I was talking about just now. Countries with strong executive constraints and countries with weak executive constraints. And what these are are the densities associated with GDP loss in different countries. So what is this telling me? This is telling me that all, pretty much all the bad GDP loss in the world are in the low executive constraints countries, and all of the concentrated low levels of GDP loss are in the high executive constraints countries. The same is true when you look at infant mortality shocks. Declines... Uh, increases in infant mortality, the picture looks exactly the same. So what is the take-home from this? The take-home from this is that the institutional environment here is making some economies way more susceptible to shocks than others. There's a link here, and I don't have time to forge it, between this and the design of aircraft. Well, what's the link? 
The link is, if you look in the literature on complex systems, one of the wonderful things is that the seven, uh, what's the one called? The, the A380 is about as complex as a fruit fly, meaning that they've now got engineering systems that actually are about as complex and as good as the things that biology could create. So that's why you take the fruit fly. The fruit fly, fruit fly cannot actually fly, it's very light and can't fly very fast, but it's an incredibly complex thing. It was created by a process of genetic evolution. If you look at the efficiency of the fruit fly and the efficiency of the A380, they actually now look rather similar, and there's some work on this. Well, how, how do you then design complex systems? You design them to be resilient to shocks. And if you look at the sort of literature on aeronautical engineering, a huge amount of that is about how do you make a system resilient to shocks. Since many of us have been on planes or about to get on planes, this is really good news. If you look at the way they're designed, they are basically designed against resilience. And you identify sources of resilience that can insulate yourself from, you know, if you're in the mid, mid, middle of the Southern Atlantic, as I was last week coming back from, uh, uh, from uh, Sao Paulo, and you get into turbulence, you know, you basically want to be sure that there's a really high level of resilience in that frame as you go through it. Now, the design of political systems needs to be thought of and political economy in a sense needs to be thought of in the same way. We have not been thinking about institution design in the same way as we've been thinking about aircraft design. What is it that gives you that shock-based resilience? And there's a hint at it here. Building systems of strong executive constraints are part of what potentially creates much more resilience and therefore is part of the story about how we think about going forward with, with to undermine fragility. I'm not going to talk about that so what do we need to do? What's the bottom line? We need more work, I would claim, to look at these three dimensions of state fragility. I've hinted at some of the work that we have done and could be doing. More work on country-level heterogeneity and microeconomic mechanisms. Thinking of this from the bottom up. What are the lessons from thinking from the bottom up? I haven't focused on this so much, but I think this is very central in the end. More work on understanding where values and attitudes come from because when I've called it strong executive constraints... That's not just about building a courthouse. It's building a system in which people believe that the, 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 the rule of law works and that judges are to be obeyed and that judges work impartially and belong to a code of ethics that means they're not in it for themselves and can't be bribed. So values and attitudes are fundamental to the way institutions work. And then, perhaps when we've done this, we can start to link this to questions of intervention and outside influence. And that's, I guess, Paul is going to take this up now and perhaps give us more messages beyond uh, the rather speculative comments that I've made. So thank you very much. I was going to depart from the ethical principles of a lifetime and give you a PowerPoint, but, uh, <laughs> but they've loaded up the wrong PowerPoint, so, uh, so I won't. Um, <laughs> The, um, I'm going to take three challenges of fragile states, and they're very much um, building on where, where Tim got us to. So the first is going to be building, building legitimacy in government, because fragile states don't start from legitimate government. We're going to then turn to building effective public service delivery, and I'm going to look at two services in particular um, as sort of emblematic of a larger problem 
Um, one is building a tax system, and the other is building a security service. Um, and we'll, we'll see if we get time for that. And then finally, managing subject to distinctive initial constraints. And Tim's raised one distinctive constraint, which is uh, proneness to shocks, um, a lack of resilience, but there's many more. Um, so we'll start with building legitimate government. Um, and let me just give you some sense of what I think it means um, to build legitimate government, what are, the, what are the economic consequences, and it's the cost of compliance uh, falls drastically. The, the cost of the state of getting citizens to comply falls drastically. Now, I'm going to refer throughout to something I'm going to call the standard model. And the standard model here is not a model in economics, it's a model in public policy. It's the standard way in which the international community addresses fragile states. And what I'm going to start by suggesting is that the experience of the last 20 years has been sufficiently disastrous that we should be pretty suspicious of that standard model. We should think in many instances it's failed and try and understand why has it failed. So, the standard model, let's start with um, building a legitimate government, and it's quite clear what the standard model is. How does the standard model build a legitimate government? Hold an election. Um, the um, uh, election confers, uh, supposedly, legitimacy on the elected government. And uh, you, see, you, you saw that in Iraq, election, election, election. You saw it in Afghanistan. You saw it recent, more recently in Libya. Right? Um, one of my students in Oxford is in the, the legitimately elected Libyan government. Right? Um, what do we know about that model? It doesn't work. Um, it doesn't work in fragile states. Um, I did a bit of work on that a few years ago with Manz Soderbaum and Anke Huffler. We looked at about, about 70 post-conflict situations, and we tried to fit sort of hazard functions um, to see how rapidly the, the risk of conflict uh, reduced, and we looked at what was the effect of elections within the first 10 years. Um, and the effect was quite complicated, but basically in the, the year before an election, the risks of reversion to conflict went down somewhat, but in the year after the election, the risks of reversion to conflict went up, and they went up after the election more than they went down. Right? So the net effect of the election seemed to be, to, uh, to be conflict increasing. Um, if they don't work, why might they not work? And um, one line of explanation, which is clearly plausible to an extent, and being pioneered by Pedro Vicente, who might be here, um, is to say elections are very often badly conducted. Um, there's now a big world database of elections, about over 700 of them, and roughly about 30% are judged to have been, sort of the outcome has been seriously contaminated by some combination of fraud, violence, bribery. Um, clearly, um, what you need there is some more checks and balances. Um, unfortunately, elections are events. They're very easy to do anywhere. 
um, checks and balances or processes, um, they're public goods, who's supposed to buy them? The government. Has the government a strong incentive to build checks and balances on itself? Not really. So the checks and balances are undersupplied. Um, but even where elections are well conducted in fragile states, they often don't seem to confer legitimacy. And Libya is a very good example there. The, the election um, after the, the uprising of the Arab Spring, the replacement of Gaddafi, the election by all appearances seemed to be well conducted, uh, but it's clearly not conferred legitimacy, practical legitimacy on the government. It controls a very small area of Libya. Um, uh, why? Um, and I think there are, there are deeper reasons in fragile states why uh, typically winning an election isn't enough to confer legitimacy, even if it's an honest election. And right? um, one reason is, uh, is that identities in fragile states are fragmented and often oppositional. Um, it's the antisocial capital that, uh, that Tim referred to. Um, we haven't got many studies that I come across in fragile states that sort of measure that. If we move to a, a not fragile state, Kenya, um, we have got good studies. Um, we've got uh, Ted Miguel's celebrated study of um, whether different uh, ethnic groups, different tribal groups, can cooperate in villages, and uh, in Kenya, they can't. Can you cooperate to maintain a well? No. Um, Tanzania, where there was more of an effort by President Pereira to build uh, a shared identity, yes. So in Tanzania, the same ethnic groups in a village can cooperate, in Kenya they don't. More recently, there's the work of Jonas Horst, who's part of the IGC, um, uh, looking at um, a flower-picking factory in, in, in the modern sector in Kenya, and that produced the pretty upsetting results that, um, that one ethnic group was actually willing to take a lower income itself uh, if, by doing so, it could sabotage the income of, a, of another ethnic group in the same factory. So that's oppositional identities. Um, where you've got oppositional identities... Um, uh, elections really don't confer legitimacy because the, the group that wins uh, is not regarded as, a, as an acceptable group by the, the group that loses. And that is a generic feature of elections. They produce a winner and a loser. Um, if we look at uh, Iraq, what did it produce? Had an election, clear winner, no doubt about the winner, Maliki, um, what, did, what was Maliki's agenda? Um, basically, go for the sunism. Right? So it was an oppositional identity, um, which clearly provoked uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, grievance. Um, but I think it's even worse than that. It's that elections are intrinsically divisive narratives. That's what's generated in an election. And... Net, almost necessarily, uh, where you've got very strongly segmented identities, the political organizations in states will be built on those segmented identities. And so the narratives that the political groups 
um, bring will be vilification of the other political group, which is also the other identity group. And so uh, democratic elections in situations of politics, oppositional politics structured on uh, identity lines produces these uh, narratives of hatred and thereby exacerbates what I believe is the real problem in fragile states as far as the legitimacy is concerned. And the real problem is that fragile states have to cope with mismatches between the segmented structures of identity and the centralized structures of power. So power in a fragile state, a lot of power concentrated at the center, identities much more fragmented. If the structure of political power is not matched with the structure of identities, so power centralized, identities are localized, um, then power cannot turn into authority. And it's only if power turns into authority that the cost of compliance falls. Um, so if the cost of compliance remains high because of this mismatch between the structure of identity and the structure of power, the cost of compliance remains high, there are three possible outcomes, all pretty dysfunctional. One is um, that the, uh, the power forces compliance. And that's what Tim Besley calls the uh, repression. Um, the second outcome is that power tries to enforce compliance, but doesn't have quite enough power to do it, and so gets violent opposition. And in the, the Besley classification, that's conflict. Um, and the third outcome, which I think Tim doesn't have a box for, but uh, we may encourage him, is power gives up government and instead it still, power still sits there in government but it becomes power as theatre. So the government pretends to govern and people maybe pretend to comply but actually what we're observing is a theatrical imitation of government rather than the real thing. Um, person who's, I think, explored that is uh, Steve Prasner. Hence, if that's the, the, the problem, you start with this match between the structure of identity and the structure of power. Um, those three outcomes are all pretty unattractive. Uh, one conclusion is there's no instant way, means of achieving legitimacy. It's just not on the menu. Elections cannot work. So what's feasible, if that's where you start from, you have to build legitimacy gradually. How do you do it? You don't do it by anointing the government with the holy oil of an election victory. You do it by gradually what government does, what government says, the narratives, are they narratives of vilification or narr narratives of unification, um, and what government is. Um, that's a statement about uh, the symbolism of identity. Is the government trying to assert an exclusive identity where the legitimate government of this country and you're not, 
or is it trying to signal an inclusive identity? Um, so those are the, uh, the, the three things that government controls us with, what it does, what it says, and what it is, its, its symbolism of identity. And then you've got two options within that. One is, if, if identities are decentralized and power is centralized, you can gradually move identities up towards power. And that's what Nyerere did over a long period. In fact, Nyerere, when he became president, the first year he actually stepped down as president so that he could just go round Tanzania. He said, I've not inherited a, a nation, I've inherited 50 tribes. And he went round telling everybody, you're Tanzanian. And he went through a load of um, both symbolic and practical means to try and build uh, a sense of shared identity. And what Miguel's experiment 40 years later showed is that that had actually worked. In Tanzanian villages, people were actually able to cooperate against, across these ethnic boundaries to, to provide the collective action, the well. Um, I believe you see it, and the, the, this is doubtless going to be a first in the world, in the, in the LSE. Um, if you look at the Middle East, um, uh, and if you ran a regression, there'd be one variable which would pretty well predict um, has this country in the Middle East um, descended, descended into severe fragility or stayed intact. Um, and that is nothing to do with have they had elections, it's have they got a king. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, so kingship in the Middle East, I think, does manage to be a symbol of a more inclusive identity um, than the dictators. The dictators try and turn themselves into an inherited power structure, and it's, it never works. Um, you know, it's noticeable that the, the effectiveness of, of kingship is not confined to the Middle East. Um, if we went back to that blue, uh, blue and red map, um, the big blue area is the Nordics, and they've all got royalty. You know? um, so um, that's to say that there's different routes to legitimacy than our own instincts. We are in a society where there's only one route to legitimacy, which we all accept, it's an election. And we somehow just extrapolate that and think it must be true everywhere. And it's a very idle, dangerous extrapolation. Other societies are not like that. Um, so, one approach is shift identity up towards power. Nyerere did it, it's possible, it takes time. Sikano in Indonesia did the same thing yeah? in an even more fragmented society. An amazing achievement, Sikano. Um, the other thing that you can do much more quickly is shift power down towards identity. How do you shift power down towards identity? One is decentralization, and the other is power sharing at the center. So these are both strategies for, for restoring that mismatch between the structures of identity and the structures of power. Let me turn 
briefly to building effective public service delivery. And again, what's the international model? Um, those of you who heard the Fragile States session yesterday will know what it is. It's, it's donor programs. Um, donor programs which include capacity building. And uh, as we heard in the testimony from Afghanistan, this seriously doesn't work. Um, it's incoherent. Donors don't coordinate. It also, because the donors are telling government what to do, it generates the psychological phenomenon of, of reactance. If you're told what to do, you try and do the opposite just to restore autonomy, which is a basic human instinct. Um, and again, it doesn't address the real problem. And the real problem, I think, is how it's a misunderstanding of how effective organizations work. Um, an effective organization makes ordinary workers productive by reconciling scale and specialization with motivation. It's back to where Tim was talking about the, the psychological foundations um, of the, the non-cognitive skills. And the real problem in the public sector in fragile states um, is that motivation, the, the bases for motivation are partly incentives and partly internalization. And in the, we know a lot more about incentives in economics, but we also know that in the public sector, incentives are not very important. What's much more important is internalization. And so what we need to think of is how do you get internalization uh, in the core uh, public sector organizations? Um, and I'm going to take uh, an example of tax administration. Um, and here I'm going to delve into behavioral economics, um, very much looking at the, the sort of things that Tim was talking about in terms of where do, the, where do values um, come from. And um, what I'm going to suggest is that the origin of a lot of uh, values and attitudes is participation in social networks. So we're going to have a structure in which social networks generate people's sense of identity. People get a sense of identity from observing a role model. They look up to the, the, the role model. They internalize that identity. That's who I want to be. And by enacting that identity, they get self-esteem. And people value self-esteem. What else do they get from participation in social networks? They get norms. Norms are just what is normal in your peer group. Um, what you get from adhering to the norms of your peers, you get peer esteem. And in you know, a lot of modern economic analysis now, we know that it's not just material self-interest that people value, it's self-esteem and peer esteem. Finally, what you get from participation in networks, as well as identities and norms, one of the things that networks do is circulate narratives. And what are narratives? Narratives basically encapsulate some proposition of causality, how the world works. If I do this, this will happen. 
and often social networks will embed some, some very false narrative. And so people will pick up a, uh, a false view of how the world works. Let's try and apply that to a very specific problem um, that's encountered um, in uh, a number of fragile states' tax authorities. Always and everywhere, the IMF has a fiscal affairs department. It goes in and it advises states on how to build their revenue. And one thing it always and everywhere recommends is a value-added tax. Um, And in six fragile African states, they've adopted value-added tax, and the net effect has been a substantial loss in revenue. So instead of value-added tax raising revenue, it loses revenue. How does that happen? Because a value-added tax has two components. One component is you pay the tax, and the other is because value-added tax is a non-distorting tax, you don't get tax on tax, you get a rebate on the tax you've paid on tax. So a a proper value-added tax system has a tax payment plus a rebate system. And in six fragile African states, one part of that system is working brilliantly. (laughs) And the other isn't. There's a lot of money being paid out in rebates, but not much money being paid in the tax in the first place. In other words, um, tax inspectors are uh, undermining, uh, gaming the system. They've they've spotted that this is an opportunity um, to to make money for themselves. So let's now try and think um, what's going on in the head of a tax inspector when a value-added tax system comes in. He's got a choice. He either runs it as it's supposed to be run, or he doesn't. And let's try and think of the, um, of the, first the social networks the tax inspector is in, and then of the identities, norms, and narratives that are generated in those networks. So we'll simplify it, because we haven't got much time. We'll take two uh, networks. The guy's in a family network, and he's in a workplace network. The family network, um, what's the identity likely to be? He's the guy with the job. An obvious identity is, I'm the breadwinner. What's the norm in the family? Well, the norm is, um, uh, he helps the family. That's what breadwinner does. And then, is there a narrative? What it actually is in your rational interest to help the family because there's a narrative which says if you help the family when times are good for you, the family will help you if times are bad. And there'll be all sorts of stories circulating families about the black sheep who didn't help the family and look what happened to him. So that points very clearly in the family network what you do... uh, you use this opportunity to steal the money. The more interesting case is the, um, uh, is the, is the, is the network of colleagues. Um, those of you who are familiar with the work of George Akerlof um, on identity economics will know that a key move is whether some, uh, a worker I, adopts the identity, I am a good X, whatever it is. In George's celebrated case, it's analysing what's... What sort of plumber do you want? You want a plumber who's internalised the move, I'm a good plumber. Um, 
let's give these guys the benefit of the doubt and say they've internalized the idea, I'm a good tax inspector. But what do we mean by, I'm a good tax inspector? Um, Well, suppose there's a narrative circulating in the system which says, if you pass, you've got a choice. You either pass money up to your manager or you put it in your pocket. And this narrative concerns what happens if you pass the money up to the manager. Well, one possible narrative is if you pass it up to the manager, the manager passes it further up and eventually it goes and pays for schooling or health clinics or whatever. That's the Norwegian version. Um, And in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, it may be that or it may be a different narrative. It may be the narrative, if you pass the money up to your manager, he steals it. So, we've got an identity, I'm a good tax collector, a narrative, if I pass the money up, my boss steals it. And now let's have a look at the norms that circulate amongst tax inspectors. One is surely loyalty to colleagues. That's a pretty normal sort of thing in most um, professions. Um, But now let's come to what does it mean to be a good tax inspector? A young guy, it's his first day as tax inspector, and he says, who should I talk to 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 learn the job? And one of his colleagues says, go and talk to old Joe. He's a really good guy. He really knows how to be a good tax inspector. What does he mean? He may mean that old Joe knows all the rules and knows exactly how to get the right amount of money out of the firm and pass it up the system. That's the Norwegian model. Or he might mean old Joe knows every trick in the book. Old Joe really knows how to raise as much money from that firm as possible. He knows that now there's a value-added tax. You go to that firm and say, not only pay me instead of the tax, but would you like to buy a value-added tax receipt off me at half price? So, that's the... um, In that system, as I've described it, it's completely locally stable that... Um, the value-added tax cannot work. Um, So this is actually a suggestion to Tim that in in his analysis, um, the state, Mobutu chooses not to build a tax system because he's not confident that he's in power. Uh, In this version, Mobutu knows he can't build a tax system. He's just sitting in a a set of norms that make it infeasible. He's going to raise his money some other way. Um, I was going to do um, the military by the same sort of techniques, um, but I haven't got time. But let me slip, finally, the last few minutes, to looking at that third thing. So we've got to build legitimacy. That's hard. There's no fast route. We've got to build state capacity. That's hard. You're trying to dislodge locally stable behavioral equilibria. And finally, you've got to manage subject to distinctive initial constraints in fragile states. Tim went through one, proneness to shocks. Let me go through a few others. Um, In fragile states, uh, citizens have come to expect chaos 
and so horizons are short. This collides with the standard international public policy model in fragile states, which is, what should we do? We should be guided by a long-term vision of where this fragile state will end up. What's the long-term vision? Invariably, Denmark. This state will end up as Denmark. Um, That can't work because if you ignore the short term, you get derailed. Some group gets, um, gets aggrieved because there's pain in the short term and so you never get to the long term, you never get to Denmark. The implication is that you have to focus on things with quick um, widespread payoffs. Second constraint, low public implementation capacity. Um, those of you who here yesterday morning, I gave the example of Burkina Faso, where the World Bank, the, the finance minister countered that the World Bank had suggested 500 reforms to implement in a single 12-month period. Right? Um, again, the standard model says start building Denmark wherever things are wrong. And the problem with that is wherever you look, you can see things are wrong. Um, my favorite example is, um, is actually what... Uh, Diffid did in South Sudan in the, the first independence years, um, it introduced a program uh, to reduce carbon emissions in South Sudan. <laughs> a very worthy thing to do. <laughs> um, the, so what's the implication? Don't navigate by what's wrong. Choose a very few easy-to-implement things. Third constraint, inflated citizen expectations set up government to fail. And so post-conflict governments typically come in with a wave of hype, and that is again partly exacerbated by the standard donor model, which is get to peace by selling the dream, selling the dream of a prosperous future. And that builds these inflated expectations. Um, The alternative, I think, is to build credibility very slowly by under-promising and over-delivering on this very narrow menu of feasible quick wins. And finally, high perceived risks deter private investment. Fragile states, very high perceived risks. I've just seen some survey evidence this afternoon um, in non-fragile Uh, low-income countries, um, uh, political instability doesn't make the top three concerns of potential investors. In fragile states, it's overwhelmingly the top concern. Um, What's worse is nearly all the investment in fragile states is what might be called pioneer investment. It's the first of its type. And that means if it succeeds, it will get copied. If it fails, others will learn not to do it. There are big information externalities generated by pioneering investment. By definition, those externalities can't be internalized by the firm, and so there's too little pioneering investment. In Britain, we actually heavily subsidize pioneering investment through tax breaks on venture capital. There's about a 40% subsidy. 
Pioneering investment in Britain is a minor component of investment. In fragile states, it's the bulk of investment, and there's no subsidy at all. Why is there no subsidy? Because the standard model pours in aid into fragile states, but then builds a wall. No public money can be contaminated by supporting private commercial activity, which would be a terrible conflict of interest. That is seriously stupid. Fragile states cannot develop without a private sector, a proper modern private sector. It's not willing to come unless it's subsidised. It should be subsidised because there are big benefits, big external benefits. And so we need to re-educate the donor community that in fragile states, aid needs not only to build the public infrastructure, it needs to subsidise the private activity. So... I uh, apologise, I've spoken rather longer than I'd intended, but I've still not covered the, quite the material I meant. But what I hope I've, b- between Tim and I, we've convinced you is fragile states are pretty distinctive. They're pretty intractable problems. Both the theory hasn't been there and the policy practice has been uh, largely a failure. We need uh, a major period of rethinking. Thanks so much. Right. Thank you. Thank you, uh, uh, Paul and Tim, for wonderful presentations. So what I suggest we do now is we pick up a few questions. We have about a quarter of an hour. Um, so maybe three questions. So there's microphones uh, on either side. So if you just put up your hand. So there's a lady here, gentleman here. Uh, and we'll collect maybe three questions. So let's start with the lady in the red in the middle there. Um, hi. Uh, my, my question is Professor Sir Paul. Um, I was um, fascinated by your uh, talk, but I had a question with regards to centralized power versus um, decentralized identity. In particular, I was interested um, with the example that you gave between Kenya and Tanzania. I am uh, from Kenya myself, and what I wanted to know is um, to what extent do you see the impact of um, democracy, and in particular multi-party democracy, um, how that impacts the moving of people from uh, decentralized identity towards centralized identity, especially if we look at Tanzania's um, multi-party democracy, compared to Kenya's multi-party democracy and the differences between the two. Thank you. Thank you. So, gentlemen in the centre. Thank, thank you very much. Brilliant talk. You mentioned behavioural economics, which is, um, I think, a fairly recent development. Uh, I, I understand, well, having some years ago here, that the, the, the behavioural sciences or the social sciences uh, approach developed mainly in America. Uh, and um, I, uh, I wonder if you would just say something about the related behavioral sciences as developed in America, let's say, opposing historical literary approaches to social sciences and the specific approach to economics, behavioral economics, if there's any relation with these two intellectual developments, if you could say something about that. Okay, thank you very much. So could, is there one other, one other question? So let's, yeah, got it. One more up there. Thank you. Uh, uh, one of the factors which we uh, 
or by large extent we are neglecting is the role of external actors or external spoilers when we are uh, thinking of fragility or rebuilding fragile states. We have a number of examples in case of Afghanistan uh, or Iraq or many other fragile states. Could you please elaborate a little bit on that? Okay, so let's... let's so, uh, well, Paul, go first. Yeah. Hmm. Do you want to start, Paul? Yeah, sure. So, um, in the, the first case, I mean, the, the, um, I mean, the, the extreme version of um, uh, political narratives creating uh, conflict um, was surely the 2008 Kenyan election. Um, where narrative, the, the, the political parties were organized on ethnic lines, the narratives were narratives of vilification, and it produced a contested winner, um, which the loser didn't accept. Um, question mark, contaminated elections, who knows, you know. Um, uh, and the result was a, a, a very clear reversion to conflict, quite, quite serious conflict. Um, uh, if we contrast that with what President Nyerere did in Tanzania, President Nyerere very consciously said, we cannot afford to have multi-party democracy in Tanzania yet. And so he created a single national party, which he then tried very hard to make an inclusive national party, so it was a mass membership party, um, and uh, only once um, he felt you know, um, um, an identity, a shared identity had been formed, has Tanzania very cautiously moved towards multi-party democracy. I mean, the, the ruling party in Tanzania has never uh, lost power, never really come close to losing power. Um, so... Um, it's been a much more cautious approach to multi-party democracy, a much heavier priority towards first building shared identity. Um, so um, on the question from Afghanistan, the role of external actors, in a way, um, my critique of what I call the standard model um, was basically a critique of external actors because the standard model is the standard model of the external actors. You know? it's, it's the insistence on elections, it's the, the donor programs, um, it's the uh, comprehensive diagnosis, everything's wrong, we'll fix everything. Um, these are the, uh, the, the key features of the... And, uh, and it's the dream of Denmark, um, which, uh, which is... Uh, you know, Sounds like a parody, but I really don't think it is. Um, so it was, a, it was basically a critique of international actors. Let me just make one comment on the question about you know, where, where does behavioral science and economics sit. I mean, I, I think the, the behavioral economics revolution, if that's not too strong a term within economics, has been a tremendously liberating experience for economists. Now, it doesn't make it a good thing in of itself. But I think that the sense in which it has been very valuable is joining up different kinds of evidence that would, would 
in the past sort of distinct. So laboratory experiments on psychological, uh, by psychologists on behavior are now integrated with work that economists do. And I think it's very relevant to the kind of research we're talking about there. So the, the things that, that result in certain kinds of antisocial behavior and violence and other things, it's kind of all, I think economists always understood they were quite hard to insert into our very traditional framework of behavior. But when you begin to import insights from different disciplines, those that are more experimentally driven, um, you can then begin to, to think about what you can learn from that. So I, I do think there's a sort of much more enriched and wider set of issues that now can be studied because there's much more convergence. And now people ha uh, uh, actually talk to each other across these traditional disciplines. Uh, so, uh, and that, and that has become a very powerful thing. And I think can only improve the way our disciplines work to tackle these very difficult issues. In the example I gave, where in addition to you know, material, rational material self-interest, people rationally are concerned about self-esteem and peer esteem. Now, Tim has got models where these things all, they all enter the utility function. Um, so it's um, uh, um, modern economics is now uh, absorbing a wider, um, a wider class of uh, psychological realism. Um, I'm, I've been working, the IGC did a, a workshop with George Akerlof in Washington in February, um, which is basically a trying to, to push this agenda forward. So I, I think we're both very keen on that sort of thing. So I see a question at the top and then one in the middle. So perhaps the gentleman at the top on the left first. Uh, and I'm from Afghanistan. Uh, Paul, at the very end of uh, your talk, you mentioned about a provision of subsidies to the local industries or to the uh, private sector. Uh, I've lived through three different economic uh, systems. The first one was the planned economic system or the communist system, and then the uh, chaos uh, economic system during the Taliban, and then we came towards the uh, market uh, economic system. Now, where do we find uh, the real balance that uh, what sort of intervention uh, the government could have in order to support the local industries? And uh, uh, how would we justify it, uh, looking at the importance of the market uh, uh, forces uh, to find out a balance where uh, the intervention of the state does not go beyond the limits to the extent that uh, it will disturb the whole uh, ecosystem. Thank you. And then the gentleman in the center. Yes, uh, Charles Data from South Sudan. Um, uh, Professor Sir Paul Collier, how would you contrast Uganda and Tanzania? Um, and specifically, I mean Museven's Uganda and uh, Tanzanians Nyerere, uh, how much did maybe Museven try to build an identity, or he didn't try at all? Can I just, just add one, one more uh, question, and then we'll have a final question. So the thing that struck me, which was difficult to think about, was a lot of the actions that are being taken to do something about this are national actions. So you know, national governments are taking some action, doing something, trying something out. And so you can run cross-country regressions where those things are, you know, 
but obviously there's problems with that. So how do you, and then there's a wall of money saying we want to we want to do something about fragility. What policy actions do we take? So how do you sort of square those two things? There's an urgency. There's the migration crisis and so forth. But the evidence base we have from a sort of econometric perspective is incredibly difficult to get identification on. So let's have a final question. The gentleman in the uh, on the corner there, and then uh, a response. Um, Tony Addison from UN Wider in Helsinki. Um, the UN has a new Secretary General later in the year. So what are the three or four pieces of advice you would give that new Secretary General That's for Paul. <laughs> as we try and reboot the UN? I'll go first because there's only one question I feel even remotely competent to answer. Um, and that's the question on the evidence base. So um, you have to understand, I, I was actually, a, it's really true, I was a central banker in the middle of the economic crisis when we were trying, we introduced in Britain the first quantitative easing program before anyone even knew what quantitative easing was. And the idea that we had a sound evidence base for knowing how you introduce quantitative easing when it was a new policy in the face of basically being on the equivalent of an aircraft with all the dials going in the wrong direction. It wasn't, it, it, we, it, so what did we do? We, we did something we would claim that was evidence-based. We took the best simulation models we had and we took them out of their comfort zone and we tried to do an analysis of what it would mean to try and do the equivalent of creating negative nominal interest rates, which is what quantitative easing was trying to do at the time. And we tried to do some respectable analysis of the likely impact that different levels of that would have on being able to put essentially in that case, it was all about robust control in my view. It's like the aircraft in turbulence to put an, uh, try and put a floor underneath a very, very uh, difficult situation. So we make policy in that environment. And the idea, sadly, that we can go and read a regression coefficient that we've done in a nice, clean uh, situation of identification of evidence couldn't have been further from the truth. I can't imagine any experiment that we could have done at the time uh, that could have, in real time, told us what to do. So we as economists, uh, you know, when you're involved in policy, and now on, a, on the UK National Infrastructure Commission where we're designing the new crossrail system from north to south London, and similarly, we're doing a lot of evidence-based work I think there's a there is a bit of a tendency in, in current economics to so narrowly define what evidence-based means uh, to mean approximately useless to real policy decisions. You know, when you make real policy decisions, particularly in tricky environments, you do find sensible economic analysis to underpin it. It just doesn't look like the kind of stuff that shows up in journals. Um, I mean, I like publishing in journals just as much as anyone around here, but... You know, I, I do think you can do policy analysis in a very different and constructive way, which isn't the same thing as what looks like you ever come out in a journal. Yeah, I mean, I think um, on fragile states, let's be honest, um, where, where does policy start? It doesn't very definitely start with evidence-based policy. Where we start from, you know, look at Chilcot, is policy-based evidence. Right? And uh, you know, policy-based evidence is, is ruinous. Um, it's, uh, by that I mean you know, people pick the evidence, construct the evidence that supports whatever policies they think should work. Um, and so 
uh, in trying to improve on where we are, what are the key things that I, economics can offer? I think one is analytics. Uh, only so many things uh, will pass robust ad- analytic tests. You know, does this make sense? And the other is natural experiments. The, the work I cited by Miguel, by Hjorst, both used natural experiments. Um, and I think there's a, there's a lot of scope for, for, for natural experiments. Um, let me quickly turn to the, the, the other questions. Um, on, on subsidies, um, it, it's very funny. The, you know, the, the, as soon as you use the word subsidy, people go in, a, it becomes an ideological issue. You can't give subsidy to the commercial sector because that's like sort of backing winners or something. Um, just let's see how I actually grounded the case for, for subsidy. It was based on the fact that you've got a very distinctive class of investment in fragile states, uh, pioneer investment. Also, the fact that there's such a high level of risk and such a relatively low level of uh, market size that why on earth should modern firms take the, take the risk of going there? Yeah. Um, so there'll be a shortage of modern firms. Does that matter? Very much so. Modern firms are the organisations which, which achieve scale and specialisation, reconcile it with motivation, and thereby perform the miracle of productivity. That is the heart of the growth process. Without modern firms, um, the growth process just will, will not get off the ground. So we need to people fragile states with these effective organizations, and they don't want to be there. Not only do the foreign firms not want to come, the domestic firms are subject to exactly the same high-risk environment. We've got an institution at the moment, MEGA, which can insure the foreign firms, but is not allowed to insure the domestic firms against political risks. That's blindingly stupid. Um, In fragile states, MEGA should be free to offer the same um, insurance package, whether firms domestic or foreign. There's one precedent to that I've discovered. MEGA does it in Gaza. And so all they need to do do is scale it up. So there's a practical example. Um, I gave you the example that in Britain, there's something like, I reckon, a 40% subsidy for uh, private investment in pioneer activities. If that makes sense in Britain, which it probably does, um, it's absurd that there is no scheme um, where international public money subsidizes pioneer private investment in fragile states, where it is much more important. Um, Is this breaching some great ideological principle? No, because it's not grounding it in some grand rival ideology. It's grounding it in the manifest existence of a quantifiable externality. Um, There was um, a question about um, uh, Museveni and Nureri. Um, I think the the evidence, the the practical evidence isn't there on on Uganda, other than that it's actually had quite a long period of, of successful growth, but the evidence really is there that Nureri succeeded in his core task. Nureri's economics 
like Sukarno's economics, were not very good. But Nyerere's political instinct and his political actions, just like Sukarno's, were, I believe, very valuable. And you can recover from bad economic policies much more easily than you can recover from a legacy of divisive politics. And so I think Nyerere and Sukarno put... uh, you can put Tanzania and Indonesia on a, on a, a solid political um, starting point. Final question, advice to the next Secretary General, why not? You know, we, um, we are, IGC is an all-service provider. Um, 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 what would be on my advice to her? Um, start again on fragile states, right? Start again, recognize that um, the international community doesn't have a very effective model. Start again. We're not going to invent one in two minutes, but we need to go through a process of serious rethinking, not in a uh, policy-based evidence approach, but in the serious thinking of what are the foundations of the state, the sort of thing that Tim started with. That's actually what we need. Thanks. Okay, can uh, thank you both and uh, join in a round of applause.